Hello, my name is Tamar Garb. I'm Professor of Art History at University College London, and I'm a member of the advisory group of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome a colleague, a collaborator, a friend, Pumla Gaboda Medikizela, to converse with me about her work and about her recent interventions into a very febrile and difficult political and social landscape in South Africa. Pumla holds the chair in historical trauma and transformation at Stellenbosch University. And this itself, I think, is significant, as for those of you who don't know about Stellenbosch, it's important to recognize that Stellenbosch was the intellectual and spiritual home of apartheid ideology. It educated the elites of white supremacist thinking in its theology and philosophy departments across the university. And the so-called architect of apartheid, Henrik Verwoerd, was educated there. So it was regarded as the center of Afrikaner nationalism throughout the apartheid years. And I think that Pumla's position in relation to that university where she's placed and the vantage point she has from which to view transformation and the difficulty of the transformational project is very, very interesting. Pumla trained in psychology and one of her great gifts to us has been to turn her understanding of human behavior built on an immersion in social psychology and psychoanalysis to bear on the ongoing threat and challenge of racism, and particularly the intergenerational inheritance of trauma and the violence and ongoing violence and violation that racism does. Her publication list is extensive. I won't go through it. Just wanted to mention her very famous and foundational book, A Human Being Died That Night, A South African Story of Forgiveness, which I think was published in around 2003, which interweaves her own personal experience as a Black South African with her encounter through interviews with Eugene de Kock, who was known as Primeval. Uh, he headed up the South African security operations at a notorious place called Flatplas and beyond. And this was the notorious site of many apartheid-era atrocities. And in the subtitle of that book, Pumla includes the word forgiveness. And this is a word that she has engaged with throughout her career in interesting ways. And I hope that we will be able, Pumla, to talk about that a little bit today. It's one of the themes to which Pumla returns in countless books and essays, amongst others around trauma, intergenerational inheritance and resistance, testimony, empathy, empathic repair, one of the concepts she's recently worked with, etc. So, Pamela, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much for giving your time to engage with us. Thank you, Tamar. I wanted to start, if you wouldn't mind, Pamela, with a recent article that you published in the South African newspaper, The Daily Maverick. And you talk in a very upsetting way, really, about the resurgence, the ugly resurgence of what you call white racism in South Africa, particularly amongst young people. And I wondered whether you'd start to tell us a little bit about what you think is going on there. And is this something new? Is it a continuation of past patterns? How would you characterize or categorize what you think of as white racism now? One of the critical observations to make about this is that it's happening at the level of younger people, the younger generation. Just repeatedly, stories that you hear in the public domain of racism, you know, young people calling out Black people as kefirs, you know, the K-word in South Africa. This has been really something quite striking. It's striking only because the expectation is that after 94, young people who are white who have grown up in the post-apartheid periods 
do not have any of the influence of apartheid or racism from their parents. That's the assumption. But what we are witnessing repeatedly is that actually it seems to be so much more emphasized now among the younger white generation. And here is why I think it is going on. I think that white people today have more opportunity to engage with black people, perhaps not of their own choosing. You know, the policies of the country, the constitution as it stands, calls for transformation. And there are laws across the board for the corporates, for universities, education. There are laws that command, that demand that all of these places, quote unquote, transform. And the way to do that is to diversify these institutions. In other words, to open up the doors of these institutions to Black people, places that used to be for whites-only schools, for example, that were whites-only schools, have now become the so-called Model C schools, which was a particular type of model that transforms whites-only schools to somewhere between a government school and a private school so that Black people can afford these schools were governed by school governing bodies, the members of whom are mostly white. So young white people are in a way forced to be in spaces with black people in ways that their parents never had a chance to. At the same time, however, they bring their notions of superiority to these spaces. And here is the thing. The contradiction between how they want to see themselves as these superior whites with the reality of their experience, which is that, you know, they see constantly Black people, you know, driving in luxury cars, Black people living in the same neighborhoods, Black people acting in ways that portray a sense of power, a sense of confidence. Now, that contradicts their worldview, at least those white people who believe in superiority. And what's interesting, actually, is that the distinction here is not between right wing and left wing. It's a sense of self, it's a sense of how young white people want to see themselves. That place of being in that position of superiority has got a lot of power so that even for young people, there's an understanding that I'm better than you. You know, you may be bright, you may be driving a luxury car, but I'm actually better than you by virtue of my whiteness. But this causes a dissonance in their worldview, in their minds. And so often, because this sometimes is so deeply ingrained at the level of the unconscious, it lashes out the dynamic, the way that it plays out. It lashes out in ways that are supposed to be counteracting this feeling of inferiority for the white person themselves, because now they've got to constantly fight the reality that actually I'm not, I'm not superior. I'm not experiencing my life as being superior to the black person next to me. So the play of all of this complexity that ravages the mind comes out in these violent ways. And the racism is a manifestation of these complex emotions, of this fight, of this effort to fight this sense of dissonance within the self. So do you think that the dream that say, our generation had of a non-racial, desegregated society that would enable the humanity of all, and that, I mean, those very classrooms of which we could only dream growing up as we did in apartheid South Africa, 
Do you think that that dream, in a sense, was built on a kind of naive hope, that hope for a non-racial democracy, and that somehow, you know, we didn't understand what was going to be unleashed? You know, how do you relate what you see as the landscape in which young people are growing up now with that utopian, you might say, vision of a desegregated, non-segregated society that was so important to the founding parents of the ANC generation? I think what's important about the dynamic of the past is that there was something very clear to fight about. You know, apartheid was the evil. It was the enemy. And it was something to fight against. And so it united black and white. I mean, if you look at students, this now is despite the black consciousness movement that emerged. But there was a genuine sense of there is something to fight about. I mean, if you look at images of organized students' movements in the 1960s, late 1960s, you see large numbers of white students protesting, gathering to protest. You don't see that today. And in those days, there was something that people wanted to change. Now that the change has happened, something else has emerged. And the something else that has emerged is the absence of the education of young people today about the importance of that solidarity that we experienced in, during our time. There was a real desire. And it was not even an empty kind of hope. There was a real genuine sense of this is possible. And in many cases, it actually was possible. There were instances where you could see the connection between black and white and in this ideal of building something that is possible and can happen. Today, however, it's a little fuzzy. You know, apartheid is gone. And so what is happening today is that what becomes pronounced is the experience of young white people being excluded. For instance, both the language and the experience is that of a feeling of exclusion. You know, whiteness now is the privileged class. And because it is the privileged class, they are unable to have entry into universities in the way that it was easy before. You know, now they've got to fight and sometimes they are rejected because now the space is not as large as it was. It was reserved, remember, you know, reservation for whites in schools, in job reservations, every sector of society. If your father, your mother was an accountant at a famous firm, you knew if you chose accounting, that's where you're going, Deloitte or whatever other big company, you are assured of that place. But now that kind of assurance no longer exists. And so the conversations around the table are conversations that are angry conversations at the current situation. And what that instills in the consciousness of white people growing up today is that we do not count anymore. And so what they're ending up with is the whiteness. And so because even those edifices of the superiority of whiteness are being broken down every day in their experiences, it's a contradiction of what they feel, what they believe they are, and the reality out there in the world. And so all of this entanglement of these contradictory emotions and reality yields this violence. And so this is what is going on today. But what's so depressing about what you're saying, besides the manifestation of the violence and how people have to live with that, is that it speaks to a society that remains as segregated as ever, 
And all those ideas that we might have had, that uh, proximity, friendship, love, sexual encounters would break down those old racialized boundaries, seem not to have worked. I mean, the way in which you describe the society seems as if there are still, for the most part, of course, there are exceptions, these coherent categories of white groups and black groups, as if these are determined identities rather than historically reproduced and institutionally entrenched categories. The proximity today, Tamar, is a blessing and a curse. You know, we bring groups together in order to pursue the goal of transformation. What's happened, is, as I have witnessed in all the universities, I've been to UCT, to Bloemfontein University of Free State, and now it's Stellenbosch University. What I see there is something that we really need to pay attention to. The value of proximity, the value of bringing black and white students together in these residences, you know, at these universities, is that you may achieve transformation. At least this is the goal. What happens instead is that the black students who come to these institutions, they come with excitement. You know, these were universities that their parents could only dream of. Now they are there, and many of them come from poor backgrounds, low socioeconomic backgrounds. Now they come to these universities buoyed and feeling excited that they've arrived at these institutions of high learning, that learning that they were reserved for whites. And then once they settle in, and it takes a matter of months, two or three months, they know that they came here from poor background, and many of them are here because of all these opportunities, funding opportunities by the government or other funding agencies. And then they experience the relationships with white students and other black students who come from wealthy backgrounds. And usually it's mostly the white students who drive in cars, they drive in and out, they can stay as long as they want and leave at 10 just before the library closes. But the black students at these universities are at a disadvantage because for them, they've got to catch probably two taxis and a train. And they've got to leave early enough to catch the last train. That already puts them at a disadvantage. And so increasingly, they realize how poor they are. They knew that they're poor, but they realize now that they're in proximity. This is now the problem of proximity. They become so much more aware of their poverty. And again, the dynamic that I described earlier of shame and anger emerges at the level of these students. And the ugly thing about this, Tamar, is that because whiteness remains a standard, whatever that perception of whiteness, for instance, if a white student calls a black student a kefir or excludes them in whatever way in class by not recognizing them, by disregarding them, then that gaze, that white gaze on the black students is taken as the truism that this is who I am and this is what becomes internalized. And because this gaze of the student who is coming from a position of superiority and power is so important in the mind of our society, in the societal thinking and societal worldview, whiteness still remains the standard. And this is something that we really need to pay attention to. And this is what you do so very cleverly in that article where you talk about what you call black fragility. So it's not only that the lives that these students lead are precarious in a practical sense, and you describe very eloquently the commuting and the way of life of people who have to manage in situations that sometimes can be very stretched and poverty and all sorts of other determinants. But there's something that you describe psychically 
that goes on about the internalization of the projection of inferiority from an outside community. Can you say a little bit more about that psychic formation and why you think it's so important to think with these psychic categories in order to explain social phenomena? The psychoanalytic perspective is very useful here in helping us understand what racism is about. And I talked about this at the beginning. Now, from the side of the Black person who's receiving this slur or this gaze, this negative gaze from someone who perceives themselves as superior, they take in this perception as if it is the truth. From the perspective of the white person, calling a black person a kefir, calling them in whatever verbal call or just the gaze itself, a dehumanizing gaze, that for them, it's also an etting out of their own shame that they cannot deal with the actual feeling of inferiority. And so what do they do? They draw on the knowledge that whiteness is understood as superior, even though they may not feel so. And so the projection is actually of the feeling of being less than by the white person. They know that if they throw this word at a black person, they know its impact. So its impact is designed precisely to make the black person feel smaller, even if they're not smaller. Now, I talk about this as black fragility because it's a lack of recognition that what the white person is doing is actually trying to make the black person feel smaller. And so because of the power of the projection, because of the power of racism, and psychologically, because of what is understood as being superior than what the black person is, there is a tendency in responding to this as if actually this is who I am. You know, it's that sense of a self-consciousness of inferiority, even though you are not necessarily inferior. I mean, I've seen this so many times when Black people are actually superior to the person who is throwing out the slur. And yet the reaction, you know, whether it is in social media, I mean, we've seen it in South Africa, some young white person who is unemployed is frustrated because they can't get a job, you know, swears or insults and calls black people with the C word, you know, you black C word or K word. And then the person reacts, the person who is actually commanding power in their role starts sending out these reactions or, you know, records this and sends it out. And that I call the mark of black fragility. But I wonder whether you wouldn't agree, Pamela, that it's not only in the case of a kind of violent assault where one can see a action, a reaction, and a kind of explosive encounter which can move beyond the rational. Do you not think that actually it's so systemic that you don't need necessarily to be abused and insulted verbally? Because entering into the edifice of, say, Stellenbosch University or UCT with the architecture, the symbolism, the buildings, that in itself can produce a kind of assault. You know, do you need the insult or do you think that there's something in the fabric of the society that still produces what you call black fragility? That is so important what you say. So the way that we should understand these processes is not only in unitary kind of explanatory understandings. It's complex. That too matters. The buildings, the establishment. 
this issue of the building is so critical. You know, you enter into Stellenbosch. The walls are white. They're white in color. But there's also something about the actual structure of the buildings that exude this whiteness. And with it, exude the history of oppression and all that it carries from apartheid. And there's so many stories. I mean, I think I have to tell you this one. When I first arrived in Stellenbosch, and it was just at the beginning of the second wave of student protests in early 2016, I had several conversations with students at the time, one which really captures what you're talking about very poignantly. The student says, and I won't give it a much larger context for the sake of brevity, the student says, whenever I come to Stellenbosch, when I enter the gates of Stellenbosch, I have to kill myself. Every time I enter, I have to kill myself. And every afternoon when I prepare to return home, I have to resurrect myself. I enter the first taxi, I have to resurrect myself. The second taxi, I have to resurrect another part of myself. And so that sense of having to die in order to be accepted in this establishment. And this is before anyone says anything. So that's one part of it. However, I do think that dealing with these kinds of issues, we have to recognize that whiteness is a very powerful structure in itself. And as we work with transformation, we also have to recognize that these are not just external. These are very much internal. The battle has to happen at the level of the internal. And so if we remove all of the external, even if we stop people calling others kefa or any other kinds of swear words, but if we don't look at this as dynamics that are deeply entrenched and deeply seated in the unconscious of both black and white students, then we're going to miss what is going on. And this is why we are struggling so much today because we are not addressing the deeply internal level. Now, what has to happen is that one of the things, I mean, I love rituals. I think rituals are so important. I think a place like Stellenbosch or University of Cape Town, at the beginning of the year, there have to be these rituals that recognize the power of these buildings as structures that exude the history, that bear the history from the past, that rituals of cleansing, because sometimes rituals can also be internalized. Something that happens in the exterior doesn't have to be anything elaborate. It's really a recognition that these histories are deeply internalized and they are carried by the next generations into their own lives as they interact and engage at the societal level. So dealing with it requires creativity, imagination of ways in which we might actually deal with this. Because if you have a ritual, then that ritual becomes the marker of a moment in my life here at Stellenbosch where I reclaim my right to be here as a Black person, as a South African. This place belongs to me as much as it belongs to you as a white student. So those rituals of reclaiming the space is what I think needs to happen so that both Black and white recognize that now we are entering a new phase. And of course, they've got to also occur at the same time as conversations or dialogue about all of the other transformative processes 
that are instituted within our constitutional bill of rights about change and transformation, that white students can embrace these as well as aspects of our transition, as our moment of change, and that they actually will help them to become better people. And so these are ways, new ways, I think that we have to embrace of dealing with the project of changing our society. What's so interesting about listening to you and listening to the way in which you use psychoanalytic theory and obviously your own immersion over time in trauma theory and looking at other difficult histories and other difficult pasts makes me want to ask you a little bit about where you position yourself now in relation to a lot of the theoretical literature that has informed your thinking. A lot of your early writing, Pumla, has really taken on board trauma theory in relation to the Holocaust. So much of that work is around Europe's painful history and the annihilation of the Jews. And you've worked with so many people who've thought with those concepts. But you've also talked in your recent writing about why, as important as those are, they are not always adequate to the South African situation. So I would like to hear you say a little bit about how you position yourself in relation to that body of literature. You've taken on Hannah Arendt, for example. Even in a subtitle to one of your texts, you say why Hannah Arendt was wrong. This in relation to Eichmann and the concept of forgiveness. So there's the whole Arendtian tradition. There's the trauma theory tradition, which you're so immersed in and yet you want to resist. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Historically, in terms of my work, you're right. It begins with a reflection on the critical role of forgiveness. And that was very intentional. When I arrived at this juncture of thinking about our past, when I was beginning to think about our past as South Africans, the language of reconciliation was dominating our discourse. And so at the same time in the early 1990s, there was beginning to develop a very strong scholarship around testimony, you know, Holocaust testimony, testimony by victims of the Holocaust, and that whole body of work that has emerged from the Yale Video Testimony Project that was led by Shoshana Feldman and Dori Lau, that scholars have used, literary scholars and psychoanalysts have used as a stepping stone for thinking about the trauma of the Holocaust. Now, at the same time in the 1990s, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And while we were using that scholarship as a touchstone for understanding what was happening in our own context, there emerged from me a challenge to this body of work. And the challenge was that something is happening here in South Africa that no one in the scholarship of the Holocaust has talked about because it did not happen. And what was happening in South Africa was the engagement between victim and perpetrator in a way that was very unique. It was an engagement that is about living together. The engagement during the Holocaust was about an engagement of prosecuting, and rightly so. Jewish people had left Europe, you know, and so it was prosecuting the criminals. Here was a moment where we were reflecting on how do we live together? And this is very, very important, and a lot of people miss this. How do we live together despite what has happened? And so the language of forgiveness and forgiving emerged from that conversation. And that's why I began writing my work as a challenge to the scholarship on the impossibility of forgiveness, which is what was kind of the standard perception at the time. And there were very clear examples of forgiveness. 
Now, my position at the time was very much celebratory about this language, about these moments. Over the 10 years period when I started turning, I started revising my thinking about this, I began to see that this language is very limited. You know, the language, the syntax of forgiveness is the wrong word to use in this context. What is important for us to understand is perhaps to theorize less about forgiveness, but rather about the possibility of the coming together of people from different sides of history. In other words, the possibility that we might be able to build a sense of solidarity despite our past. And I've come to understand that this actually is important for us because forgiveness turns people off. And in fact, sometimes people say forgive when it means different things. And when the word is used often from the perspective of those who were perpetrators or those who benefited from the past, is really to mean let's forget the past. Let's move on and forget the past. What I found here rather now is that the word actually tries to capture a sense that I can live with my trauma. I can live side by side my trauma and I can tell a different narrative. Now that I have encountered you as a perpetrator with your sense of remorse and your sense of recognition that what you have done has hurt and destroyed my family, I am able to take the step, the first step, to hold your hand into the future. It's really about that possibility, that the language is about the possibility. The rest of the work, as I say in my new work, is about repair, is the work of repair. That first step is the first that people call forgiving, is that first step of just the possibility. It's interesting to me that even Hannah Arendt's biography, Elizabeth Young Brill, after she read my work and really began to reflect on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, she too used the language of Hannah Arendt being wrong because she said, well, she has to be polite. She said, you know, Hannah may have been wrong. But that in itself is important. And so this idea of repair, the notion of repair, just in the understanding of something that is a process rather than forgiveness, which is sort of terminal. It's like I've forgiven, you know, I leave this behind me. Whereas repair challenges us to look into doing something every day, to be reflective every day. You know, the reparative, the notion of the reparative suggests that idea of movement forward, that this is an attempt to repair. This is a reparative humanism. We are building, it's an ethic, it's a new kind of ethic, which is very different from the language that has an end point, reconciliation. You know, there's a goal to reconcile, to forgive. Here, it's an opening. It's a process. Yeah, it's an opening of a journey rather than the shutting down and reaching a goal. And that really is important also when you think about how trauma is transgenerationally transmitted in whatever form it is passed on. That process of repair, I mean, as we are dealing today with racism, the resurgence of racism, which manifests at the level of young white people, it means that every generation, we have to constantly recognize that this too has to be worked through by this generation. Well, that's so so interesting and powerful, actually, to hear. And in reading your work around this, I'm very struck by the way you use the words empathic repair 
And just to finish our conversation, Pomlo, we could go on for ages, but I know the time is limited. So I wanted you to think just briefly, if you wouldn't mind, about the new turn in your work to look at the aesthetic and art-based practices as a site through which the processes of empathic repair can be articulated and enacted. And you've written very beautifully, for example, about Philip Miller's Cantata, which takes on the cry of Nomonda Kalata, one of the widows of the Craddock Four, the widow of Ford Kalata, who I think you write about how the sound of her cry, the sound of her pain, which resonated over the hearings of the TRC, then becomes a kind of recurrent motif that is broken up and played with and re-articulated in such a beautiful way by singers in Philip Miller's piece. And you write about that and other artworks. So could you tell us how you think that the aesthetic might be a site for the kind of reparative humanism of which you speak? So there are two ways that I use the notion of the aesthetics. One has to do with a rereading of the testimonies of the TRC. In other words, a reading back to the past and looking at the language of a testimony to rethink the process of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a kind of a moment that can be reinterpreted in different ways. For instance, in what ways might just a testimony of a perpetrator who talks about, you know, killing an anti-apartheid activist putting their body on a pier and burning them for nine hours and throwing them into the rivers of the Eastern Cape, for instance. In what way might we read that as a story that goes beyond what is said in words? You know, just the act of burning a body for nine hours, first of all, whether that is true or not, is another part of the story. So burning the body, if you look at that, as a kind of an image, we imagine that as a kind of an aesthetic moment that allows us to imagine it either as a performance of something that is difficult to put in words or as a foretelling of something that awaits us in the future. And so I use the notion of aesthetic then to suggest that What we missed at the TRC was that these stories are so powerful as aesthetics, you know, presenting us with the possibility of interpreting them in these kinds of ways that can foretell the violence that's going to happen. Because if you look at just the story of a perpetrator who says, you know, I burnt the body or I shot them into the grave and buried the body into some secret grave, And you think about grave and the body that couldn't speak was thrown in there as an embodiment of a story that remains untold, that remains buried. And the possibility of such a story bursting out from this grave and issuing out from being resurrected from the depths of the soil into a visible form of violence and violation. That's how I'm reading the aesthetics. That's how I'm using this notion on the one hand. On the other hand, art itself that comes out of this work is very powerful. I mean, you refer to Philip Miller's TRC Cantata, a powerful, powerful story that is retold through music by just the inimitable way that Philip does this work. And in that work, what I do, I'm not sure whether Philip likes this, but what I do, I speak about his work as perhaps a moment that speaks through his own trauma. 
Now, here lies a possibility that while it may be his own trauma, and this, of course, is I'm taking liberties here, it's a trauma that I want to understand as a trauma coming from a place of someone who carries their own shame, trauma, and if we apply that to whiteness, for instance, as beneficiaries of apartheid privilege, if we look at art as a possibility through which, as a moment through which all of these conversations can be had about the past, the power of talking through art works about shame, guilt, pain, suffering, so that all of these emotions are encapsulated in this image, in this artwork. And as we gather around it, we are gathering to bring our stories, whatever they are, whether they're stories of guilt, of shame, of pain and suffering, and that the space of this artwork is a space that contains all our stories. And that's the power of the artwork because it does have that possibility that while we are imagining or beholding, as it were, a work of art that speaks to the past or that is created based on the past, it allows us to language all of these complicated emotions that we carry that are unspeakable, that we are ashamed of verbalizing. But here they lie in this artwork. And one such artwork is Judith Mason's The Blue Dress. Now, the making of the blue dress is very much apropos here because she makes the blue dress while she is listening to the story of a woman who was shot, was tortured, severely tortured by the police. And because she wouldn't work for the state, she was driven, literally driven to a grave. They walked her to a grave that was dug up, had a stand in front of the grave and shot and killed her in the grave. And she was covered up. Now, Judith Mason resurrects her. She resurrects this body in this disembodied form of this dress that's made out of this blue plastic because she was wearing, she had covered her genital area with a blue plastic bag that we assume she picked up from the room and she was naked when they tortured her. So she builds this up, Judith Mason. So it is that idea of resurrecting not just the story itself and retelling it in a different way, which means something for her, but she resurrects it in order for us now to relate to the story and to relate with it through our own engagements, through our own projections and identifications with this story. So in that space of telling the story, there are lots of these identifications, depending where you position in relation to this story, as well as the projections that take place within this space. So the power of the aesthetics, we have not taken advantage of it enough and this next phase of our work, we'll be doing just that. Well, it has been an immense privilege and a pleasure to talk with you. I look forward to seeing the work that comes out of that project and to ongoing conversation. And thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Thanks to you, Tamar, so much. And you know how important you are for our own conversations. And we're so grateful that you always make yourself available to help us think through so thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk.
forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.